Assignment due today is the article review, second article review. Um, if you have it, of course, I'll take it after class or between class and lab, however you want to do that. Or you can submit it on D2L by 6 o'clock tomorrow. So anytime by 6 o'clock tomorrow, you can go ahead and tomorrow morning, you can go ahead and submit that. So if you're still, if you forgot about it, you still got time to, you still have time to work on it. I'm sorry? No, homework is due next week. Next week? Yes. Did you push it back? What? Did you push the homework back? No, I gave it out this week. Did I say it a different time than another? Did I say it another time? I might. I could have sworn it was supposed to be due today. Okay. It shouldn't because you haven't covered most of the material. We've covered chapter 11, well, chapter 10 and 11. Actually, we have covered most of the tab material, so we're actually, ahead, we're actually a little bit ahead. So. But no, it wasn't due until next week anyway. Okay. Okay, any questions? All right. Quiz, iTunes quiz is up and available anytime before next, before by Monday. So you can take that to this weekend if you want. You can take it again. You have through Monday to actually get that completed. The observing night, if weather isn't like it is right now, you'll be able to hopefully have a chance to come by and observe, get a chance to look through the telescopes and see a few things on Tuesday night. So hopefully that'll clear up there. Homework five should be due a week from today, so next Friday. If you've got it done, of course, you can always submit it early and be done with it. And you don't have to worry about it. And then quiz five will come up after that. That'll cover, for us, chapters 11 and 12. 11, which we're finishing up today, and 12, which is scheduled for we'll probably start today and then get into that next week, will be here. Exam three is coming up right after this on chapters, what is it, one, two, three, four, eight, five, on chapters, probably through chapter 12, should be through chapter 12. So that should be coming up right after, on 10, 11, and 12. So, questions? No, no. Articles, you can use the articles I put up for the last one. I didn't put any new ones up. You can use another one of those if you want to choose a different one. You can do another one of those if you want. Or, of course, use those as a guide to find your, find your own. All right, picture of the day for today. A galaxy, actually two galaxies, can you see them both there? Actually two galaxies in the process of merging together, colliding together. So two galaxies have started smashing together and you can see, see the cores of them combining down here. You can see some of the streams of material from the collision being thrown off in each direction from this collision. Now a galaxy collision is not like a collision we think of on Earth, right? You think of a car crash, it's done and over. Well, to a galaxy maybe this is, to us it isn't. Because we can go and look at this again tomorrow, it's going to look exactly the same. We can go and look at it next year, it's not going to change. Now if we could look at a million years ago, it wouldn't have looked like this. You might have seen two galaxies, you might have actually seen, been able to separate the two galaxies at the time. If you could look at it a million years from now, it will have changed quite a bit. It will have coalesced. It won't look quite so odd in the middle there. It might actually start to coalesce into looking more like a normal galaxy again. The galaxies are very resilient like that. They do collide and they get all scrambled up. But then eventually over time, over millions of years, they'll come back and they'll look like a perfectly normal galaxy again. Our, ga our own galaxy has gone through things like this in the past. 
So our own galaxy has collided with other galaxies and it's pretty much back to normal again. Are we going to collide with galaxies again? Yes, we will. In fact, there's small galaxies that orbit around us that we're in the process of colliding with. There are, we are on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy. So the last numbers I saw, you know, some number of billions of years from now, our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy will collide and eventually merge together. Again, not, not before the end of class, so you don't get, don't get out of the final exam or anything. But in billions of years in the future, that's something that, will, that could happen. But we don't see them. We don't see them just instantaneously happen. We can't watch them. So we can't watch a galaxy collide any more than, as I mentioned last time, we can watch a star form. You know, we can see all the different stages of star formation. We can see the clouds. We can see the protostars. We can see the young stars. But we can't watch one star go through that cycle. Same thing with galaxy collisions. I can see galaxies approaching each other, getting ready to collide. I can find another pair that's just starting to collide. I can find some that are in the middle of colliding. I can find some that are slightly after a collision. And I have to use that information to piece together what happened in that collision, to what happens overall when galaxies collide. The only other way we can really look at them directly is to make a computer simulation. Right? You can put all the information into a computer about you know, where, is, where your stars, how your stars are distributed in the galaxy, in two galaxies, have them come together. And you can watch them. Because you could run, then you can run millions of years in a day. So you can run millions of years in a very short period of time. You can go back and forth and watch how the galaxies collide. And when you do some of those, you get some images at the end that look very similar to this and other examples of galaxies colliding. So we have some understanding, can get a better understanding that way, but we can't really watch. We cannot just watch one pair of, pair of galaxies as they go through and collide with each other. So, questions, questions? Yes, ma'am. Is that like a catastrophic event where things are just smashing into each other and breaking up, or is it this is just kind of like melting together? Sma things are smashing into each other, like the dust clouds, the gas clouds, are smashing into each other and causing stars to form. That's a good point. You notice those tidal tail, the tails going out? They're all very blue. Okay. That's the very hot stars that are forming. When you smash those clouds together, the first biggest, brightest hot stars that are going to form are the blue ones. So you do get things crashing together like that. Stars don't really crash together in a galaxy, when galaxies collide. So the stars will pass right by each other. Stars are that tiny compared to how far apart they are. You know, we're here in the Andromeda, in the, the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah, and the uh, Alpha Centauri are you know, four light years apart. We could fit a heck of a lot of stars in between us. So there's lots of places where stars can pass right by each other and never collide. Never, never, yeah, sometimes they're going to collide, of course. You can have that where it's lined up perfectly. It's a very rare event compared to galaxies. You know, how many stars could you, how many billions upon billions of stars could you put between us, <coughs> suns, could you put between us, us and the nearest star? A lot. How many galaxies could you put between us and the nearest galaxy? A couple dozen. So when things collide, yes, things do collide like, the, like the, ga the gas clouds, which are real big. They do collide. But the stars themselves will not. So you can imagine it. How do we do it here? Imagine uh, if you had a bunch of you know, beach balls bouncing around the room, right? Put, it, put 20 beach balls bouncing around this room. Those are the galaxies. They're going to collide, right? 
they're going to bump into each. If you could just have them bouncing around randomly, they're going to hit each other. If you had a bunch of little tiny, you know, little tiny balls, BBs or something, bounce, had 20 of those bouncing around the room, you're going to bounce around a long time before they're actually going to happen to hit each other. That would be the stars in the, in the collision. They'd be there, but they're so small compared to the whole overall space that they're never really going to hit each other. Sometimes that, that little example gives you a little bit better feel because you have the feel, of, the feel for that a little better. Any other questions? It's good. No? Okay. Other thing I wanted to put up here, meteor shower coming up this weekend. Orionids. Uh, it's going to peak on the 21st, which is Sunday morning. It's best visible between um, about midnight and sunrise. Well, midnight and 6 a.m. or so, when it's still before, it's before the sun starts to get before it starts to get sky starts to get too light, and so we'll be hitting we'll be in the path of a comet during that time. Now that doesn't mean we're close to the comet. We're close to the comet's orbit. The comet now is Halley's comet, which is now way out in the outer solar system, passed by Earth back in the mid 1980s, passed in close, and it left some of its particles behind. It formed, the comets form a tail. They left some of those particles are strewn behind in its orbit. And what we're going to be doing over the next couple of days is passing through that. So you'll be able to see maybe 20 or 30 meteors an hour. Not very often. Sometimes you think when you see a meteor shower, you're looking up, streaming. That's not what a meteor shower is like. A real big meteor shower, you might get 50, 60, 70 meteors an hour, one a minute. Here you're waiting, you might be waiting a couple minutes between them from a pretty dark site. If you're trying to go out here and look at them, or if you're in the middle of Harrisburg, it's going to be a lot harder because you're only going to see the brightest of them. Where to see them is near Orion. So if you look after midnight, Orion will be up. Uh, you can see it nice and easy in the morning right now. Orion, Orion Orionids are nice because they're close to Orion. And that means that they, it stands out. It's one of those constellations that people can find. Orion has four bright stars sort of making up the body here, three in the belt. And those three bright stars, usually close together, really stand out to people. And if you look off to the upper left, you'll be able to see what we call the radiant. Now, you won't, you won't see them streaming like this, but you'll see the, star, the, the meteors will appear to come in this direction, this direction. They'll all appear to come from this point in the sky, though. So when you look, you want to look in the direction of Orion, and that's when you'll start to see, again, if it's clear and dark, you'll get to see a good number of meteors. And that's the chance. The best time to see it this weekend is Saturday night into Sunday morning. But that doesn't mean that tonight, get rid of the rain, yeah, wouldn't it be a possible, wouldn't, you wouldn't get to see a good number too, or the next night, Sunday night into Monday, you'd also get to see, get to see some. But the best time is after midnight. So if you're you know, a late, late person or an early person, that's the best time to see it. Yes, sir? November 7th. I heard there's a meteor shower. It was supposed to start at the 28th. I was thinking it was this one. It was supposed to last still on November 7th. Don't usually have, they don't usually last that long. They're usually only a couple days. There might be another one in November, or it might be the last one till November. I don't know. I'd have to see what they'd well, said on that. But yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean you won't see straggly meteors from it, but the peak of it is only going to be these couple wow. days. I mean, the orbit of the comet. You know, the or a comet had some orbit. Well, over time, those particles spread out. So we don't just pass through it instantaneously. It might take us a couple days to pass through it. And there might be some particles further out that we'll pass through. But November 7th would be an awful long, awful long time. For, that's a couple weeks worth of, 
of passing through it. Now, there, there might be another one. There was another meteor shower in the beginning of November, so that might have been what it was referring to as well. But I just want to put that up there since by the time I see you on Monday, it'll be mostly over. So it's a chance to go out if we get, we get rid of the rain this weekend. Of course, better get the rain now and then have it clear on Tuesday. So better than pouring down rain on Tuesday. So any questions on that before I jump back to our chapter or anything else? Already. All right, we are finishing up chapter 11. We were looking at star formation. So the last thing I'd shown, yeah, yeah. last thing I'd shown you was just here. This was just a couple examples of protostars that we can see some of these phases. So some of these early stages we can see. We can see the dark dust clouds. We can actually see if we look in, especially in the infrared here, you can see a bright object with perhaps a disk of material still around it. But you can see actually a bright object which is one of those protostars in the infrared. Deep down buried in this dust cloud. So we don't see through it very well in the visible part of the spectrum. Some of them that are just starting to get out, that are bright enough, that are starting to, some of their light is starting to get out, we can see in the visible. But most of the time when we want to study these stars that are forming, we look in the infrared part of the spectrum at these stages. So when you're at the protostar stage, you're best going to see it in the infrared. The earlier stages, when it's a big dust cloud, it's not even hot enough to see in the infrared, then you want to look in the radio. So I got to here and I was going to say we were going to look at you know, what happens with other stars. So stars that are more or less massive than the sun. Really, the idea, what happens, everything that I've explained to you in forming the sun is the same. You start with the gas cloud, it fragments, it collapses, and becomes a protostar, starts to work its way down, collapsing, 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 heating up. Ignition occurs, so the star starts to form, starts to form hydrogen into helium, stabilizes, and ends up on the main sequence. The same thing happens if a star is you know, a third the mass of the sun or three times the mass of the sun. Well, the process doesn't change. The only thing that changes is where it ends up on the main sequence. So the stars that are much less massive end up further down towards the cooler temperatures. Their final temperatures will be different. But the overall pattern that we follow for those stars is exactly the same. If you're going up to the more massive stars, again, very similar pattern. Three times the mass, the pattern it follows is exactly the same. There, there's not really a difference in how the stars form. There's a difference in the time that they take to form. The more mass you have, the quicker the star forms. It goes a lot faster if there's a lot of material there. It's, the gravity can kick in and forms it a lot faster. So if we look at some stars, if we look at some formation of some stars that the part of the main sequence, if we look at a cluster, you know, these stars might already be formed before these ones get to the main sequence while these ones are still in the process. It takes a lot longer time for these to condense and form. In fact, you have some clusters where these stars are still working their way to the main sequence. They're still forming. They're still in the process of collapsing while those most massive stars are gone. They live such a short life that the little, little tiny stars haven't even had time to form before they've hit their main sequence, used up all their energy, and have zoomed off again. But as I mentioned before, we did the HR diagram. When we look along the HR diagram, again, we plot temperature and luminosity, but it also tells us the mass. These are the very low mass stars. 
up to the top are the very highest mass stars. Now what happens, I remember I made a point that you had to hit that 10 million degrees. Once you hit 10 million degrees in the core, you actually had a source of energy. You formed, that's when you became a star. So which leads you to the point, what's going to happen if you don't quite get there? What if you only get to 9 million degrees in the core? You're not hot enough to fuse hydrogen to helium. Small enough objects will do that. They will not be able to fuse hydrogen to helium. They will never really become a star. Nuclear fusion will not begin in their cores. Doesn't mean they won't get incredibly hot. They will still go through those entire stages that we talked about in terms of forming a star, except they'll never get hot enough there to fuse hydrogen to helium. So they won't have an energy source. They'll still be very hot from their collapse. Remember those protostars were getting hotter and hotter and they were glowing very brightly. Thank you very brightly in the infrared part of the spectrum. But there are these stars, and these are a couple of images of them shown here in the infrared, here in infrared invisible part of the visible light. It's what we call a brown dwarf. And a brown dwarf is simply a star that didn't have enough energy, enough mass to get hot enough in the core to actually fuse hydrogen to helium. It's a failed star. It didn't make it. It's never going to do anything else. It's just going to be there. You can think of it as a failed star. It's also like a gigantic planet in a way. Gigantic Jupiter. Jupiter is, no, Jupiter is much smaller than the typical brown dwarf. Isn't near as hot at the core. So you have to have many, many times Jupiter's mass in order to have that. But it's something in between a very big planet like Jupiter and a very small star like some of the ones around you know, in the Alpha Centauri system, the closest one, Proxima Centauri, is a very, very small star. So these are what we call a failed star, or a brown dwarf. They never got enough energy, they just didn't get hot enough at the core to actually create, to create hydrogen fusion, to fuse hydrogen into helium. And it just depends on how big that fragment was. If there just wasn't enough mass there, that's never going to get big enough. Now we like to look at clusters for stellar evolution. We looked, I had you plot a couple of those last week. No, you don't have to plot any more this week. Yay. Although it is that there are some other things, interesting things we can do to look at those to understand how stars evolve. Why do we want to look at a star cluster? <coughs> if I just look at a random sample of stars, I don't know when they formed. Okay? You know, that star, that bright star out that direction formed, might have formed a billion years ago, and this one might have formed a million years ago, and this one might have formed three billion. They all formed at different times. So we don't know where they are in their lives just by looking at them. If we look at a star cluster, they pretty much formed at the same time. Not exactly, right? Some of them might have formed a little earlier, some a little later. But like the distances, they're all about the same. We don't have billions of years difference in some stars versus other stars forming in a cluster. So it is a way to look at how the mass changes how a star evolves. Compositions, should have mentioned, the compositions are the same too. Right? Formed out of one cloud, they're all formed out of the same stuff. It's not like one of them has a lot more hydrogen or a lot more carbon or anything else. There aren't any big differences between that. So we can really look at how the mass affects how the stars evolve. And when we look at that, here's a young cluster. Might look familiar. Does that HR diagram look familiar? It should. You plotted it last week. That's the Pleiades. That's a relatively young star cluster. 
and you plotted it, you found there was a main sequence, and you kind of saw this little turn up here where we're starting to turn. So that's a relatively young cluster of stars, and we see that they're turning off. These ones are leaving the main sequence. Originally, you would have had a more a straighter line going up, that these stars would have been on the main sequence. They're starting to leave it. They're starting to evolve and change. They're getting bigger, they're heading towards this direction, they're going to start getting redder, eventually they'll end up over here in the red giant and the red supergiant phase of the HR diagram. This is what we call an open cluster. So we can look then and we can see that all these stars are again about the same age, they're made of the same stuff, so the only thing that's different between them, between this star and this star, is how much mass it had when it formed. They formed at the same time and they formed of the same stuff. Yeah. It will they'll go through the stages, they'll work their way down the main sequence. So like these are turning off and then it will turn off here and here and here. Yeah, but as that happens, like will the tail of that cluster move up? The tail down here? Yeah, like won't change. Say, I was asking like, okay. will it essentially stay group like that for yes. the lifetime. Yeah. Okay. It'll stay group. This this will look the next one is a little later. So here's the main, these stars didn't change, here's where they're turning off. It gets a lot more complicated up here, what's going on with the evolution of some of these stars. But this part will not change. What we'll see is that turnoff point, and I'm going to go back one second, where they're leaving the main sequence is just going to work its way down. So these stars live the shortest times, they're gone first. And as you go, it's going to slowly, as you go through time, it's going to go down and down and down. After 10 billion years, you'll get to turning off stars like the sun. They'll go through, they've gone through their lives. So this was an open cluster. Again, very young. You have lots of hot blue stars in it. You can see a number of them there in the image. Now if we look at the other one, there's another one. Looks like the other cluster you plotted. I don't, don't have the name of this one. I'm not sure if that is the one you plotted or not, but similar. But you saw quite a difference between the two. You had a main sequence. You have stars going through subgiants and up into the giant branch, up into supergiants. Here's the red giants up here, so subgiants, giants. Also the horizontal branch, which we'll come back and talk to a little bit more in the next chapter. But the whole idea is you don't see any stars on the main sequence up here. They're all gone. All these stars that were on the main sequence have lived their lives and are gone and dead. So it's telling us we can look at each of these, we can look at one phase of the evolution. We can look at this one is so many billions of years old and we can see what does a star of a certain mass look like at that, at that age. Again, we can't sit there and watch one star. Like the galaxy collisions. We couldn't watch the galaxies collide unless we did it, you know, did a simulation on it. We can't watch the galaxies, the stars evolve. It takes too long even for the most massive stars. But you do see, what you do notice here is that there's a lot more stars in the red giant region and nothing up in this side. Very few, little of anything up in that side. Now we'll come back and we're going to look at this in a little more detail in the next chapter. But here's a couple of examples from Orion. So in Orion is where we see a lot of star formation. This is the Orion Nebula. Two pictures side by side are the same nebula. Looking at exactly the same thing. The only difference is you're looking at invisible light here, you're looking at it in infrared here. So visible light, you got all that gas and dust that's illuminated that blurs out everything. 
When you look at infrared, you see through a lot of that and you can actually see the star cluster in the process of formation. So if we could come back in millions of years and look at the Orion Nebula, it'll be gone. Won't be an Orion Nebula there anymore. But you will have a star cluster. You'll probably have a nice open star cluster there that would look very similar to that. Because the stars are just in the forming. This is the next stage up. This is when you've started to form. You've gotten rid of a lot of that gas and dust. Still some. You can still see some remnants of it there. But you've gotten rid of most of that gas and dust by the time you get to that phase. This is just the precursor to that. That's what you get before it. So the stars are all forming there. You see a lot of the stars. Stars and protostars deep down in this nebula. Come back in a million years. Right? And you will see a cluster of stars there. Most of, the, most of the material will be gone. It will be burned off by the stars. It will be pushed away. And you'll just see that cluster of stars with a little bit of remnants of material around it. So this is an area where star formation is going on right now. So right now stars are forming in, in this area. Again, you've got to come back in a million years to really see the result of it, what that cluster is going to look like. And what it does when you get these very hot stars, some of these very hot stars, these O and B stars that don't live very long, they can also have a great effect on the cluster. Because they're putting out a lot of energy, they can tear the cluster, they can almost tear the gas apart and sort of inhibit star formation. You start forming stars, you form some of these really big stars, depending on how many you form and how, the, how everything forms, you can actually push material away and blow that, push that dust away before it can actually condense into more stars. So you might inhibit the formation of some stars in that cluster. Now this example is a simulation of a cluster where you see some of the materials. You see some of the material here strewn out. The denser areas are the brighter colors, so very dark is almost no material. Here you see very little material, denser column of material. Really dense down here you see some stars that have formed. This isn't a photograph, this is actually a computer simulation. So you put many billions of dust particles in there and you calculate their, calculate the gravitational forces and between each, each and every one of them. And you run the simulation over uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years and see what comes out, what kind of stars form. So you might see things like brown dwarfs because you can tell how much mass is there in your simulation. Stars with perhaps a disk of material. Stars that are getting ejected out of the cluster. Now what I'm going to do here, let me exit this for a second before I go to the review. And let me actually pull this up. This is the same simulation, but this is actually the simulation. Instead of looking at one graph of it, this is actually the entire simulation. And this runs for about a minute and a, minute and a half or so. And what it does is it starts off with this big ball of material, a little bit denser towards the center, less dense towards the outsides, and something has started it collapsing. And as I play it, you'll watch it collapse and you'll watch it form, start to form some of these stars. This is sort of a computer simulation showing how star formation may go. So something started it collapsing. You can see how you form some sort of dense knots of material. And you can see how the density is increasing. That's what the brightness is showing, that you're getting a lot more material concentrated in these areas, wherever <laughs> the concentrations happen to hit. Adjusting the density scale, so we're looking, going to look in and we're going to look at the denser areas now. 
rotate it a little bit. And let's zoom in and look at this area where stars are forming. So let's look at some of these areas in more detail. And you see stars starting to form, spinning around there. A lot of stars close to each other. They're getting thrown around. So you can see the gravitational effects as they pass close to each other. They get thrown out. You see a lot of that. You see where all, their, all the gas is very dense and where lots of stars were forming. There's one of those with a disk. It looks like a disk there. Sort of disk of material around it. And then let's zoom in and look at this a little bit better. Again, you're seeing the idea of how the stars have formed. The material denses and you get those cores as to, where, as to where the material is actually forming. And somewhere in there is actually the image. Right around there is the image. But now if you go back and look at that, that doesn't look a lot different than the Orion Nebula, that image I showed you in the infrared of the Orion Nebula just a minute ago. Let's see if I can go back there. Can I get back there or not? That doesn't look all that different than that image of the Orion Nebula that I showed you. This is a computer simulation just collapsing a dust cloud, letting that dust and gas collapse and form stars. And it really doesn't look, in the details perhaps, but previous, come on. Okay. There. It's because I'm in the wrong screen. It doesn't look all that different than this. <coughs> See that here? There's all those stars that have formed, some denser areas, still some gas around it. There in the infrared, when we look at the other one, not as many stars, but again, this is just a simulation, so you get a similar type, similar type of structure. There's a denser core there, some material still scattered around it, and a number of stars that have begun to form. So we can do a simulation of this. This took 266,000 years, not a computer time, but took 200, we ran it for 266,000 years. So. Again, we're not going to be able to sit and watch them. It takes hundreds of thousands to millions of years to actually go back and watch how these clusters will change. All right, let's get back to this one. So that's just an example of a simulation that can be done. Um, that was done, I'm trying to remember, I looked up the numbers last time and I should have put them on there, but it was some number of some very large number of hours on a big supercomputer to run that. So I mean, it's a, it's a very intense calculation because you have to look at the gravity between each individual object there. So you have to do so many calculations for every second worth of time, every year's worth of time, you've got to look at each calculation as how gravity is affecting each, each different set of particles there as you're forming those stars, as the gas cloud collapses. All right, let's finish up chapter 11. Chapter 11 is really about the interstellar medium and we had two parts to it. We had gas and we had dust. We can see, we see the dust, we see the effects of the dust in terms of that they block out the light. So dust is very hard to see through invisible light. It every, blocks out everything behind it, absorbs all that visible light. But if we use things like infrared or radio, we can see through it. And that's what we looked at with that picture of Orion. I can actually look into the cluster, into the Orion cluster, that open cluster that's in the process of forming, and we can see it when we look in the infrared. Can't see it in the visible part of the spectrum very well. 
Some of the different nebulae that we talked about, we talked about emission nebulae, which are associated with forming, formation of large stars. We saw that towards the end. I didn't describe it as that, but when you're forming that nebula, you're getting those bright hot stars forming with gas around them. Guess what? Those stars are going to illuminate that gas. They're going to excite it and cause it to glow. That gas, no matter what it's initially made of, is going to be all hydrogen, almost all hydrogen, and it's going to give us that bright red color, that red line of hydrogen. Dark dust clouds, very cold, 10 degrees. Remember, not 10 Fahrenheit, not 10 Celsius, 10 degrees above absolute zero. Minus 260 degrees Celsius, minus 400 and some degrees Fahrenheit. Bitterly cold. Almost as cold as you can possibly get. But out in space, that's where they're forming. That's where the beginning, that's the seedings of star formation. So that's deep in those is where the stars are going to start forming. And that's why we can't see it. You're in this big dust cloud. It blocks out everything around it. We can't see what's going on. Not until that star breaks out of its cocoon can we really see what's going on with that star. How do we study them then? We can't look at them visibly, but we can look at them using the hydrogen line, that 21 centimeter hydrogen line. That was the one where we had the, pro the, you had the, atom, the hydrogen atom and you could have the spins either both up, proton and electron, or you could have one of them flipped. That's the stable state, but they could bump each other into that state and when they flip, they give off an energy, a photon, just like you do when you jump the energy levels that we looked at before, but they'll give out a, a radio wave in 21 centimeters. So we can study that. That maps where all that hydrogen is, even deep within a dark cloud. So you, there's nothing there. It's not emitting any visible light. And if it were, there's so much dust there, we couldn't see through it anyway. But we can study it with this, with the radio telescopes. How does the star formation begin? You've got that big cloud. It starts to fragment. So it starts to break. One big cloud breaks into bigger, breaks into smaller chunks. And that continues. Oops, wrong way. Starting off, gravity kicks in and starts to fragment it. It's going to start to increase its temperature. It's going to increase its luminosity. So as those particles collapse, it increases the temperature at that core. So increases from 10 degrees to 100 degrees to 1,000 degrees to 10,000 degrees. Once it gets up to 10 million, that core is hot enough and it begins, nuclear fusion will begin. So we can actually form a star. That's when you have actually formed a star, is when you've gotten it up to 10 million degrees. This is some of this we can see. I've shown you pictures of some of the cloud fragments and the protostars where we've actually seen this process going on. We looked at today and sort of starting out where I showed you, I didn't really go into much great detail about how other stars form, more massive or less massive. You know, it took me only a couple minutes to go over that. That's because there isn't a big difference. This whole process is the same regardless of the mass of the star. The only thing that is different in it is how long it takes. The massive stars form more quickly. And where it ends up on the main sequence. The massive stars end up on the upper left hand corner of the main sequence. The low mass stars end up on the lower right. But the process by which they form is exactly the same. Now typically when a cloud forms, you don't just form a single star. You have this thing that was you know, a thousand times the mass of the sun and you condense it to a star, you're going to get a star that's 
you know, tremendous in size. You get a star that's tremendous in size. That's not stable. It usually breaks apart long before that and forms a number of stars. So typically when you form it, as we're forming in Orion right now, you end up forming a cluster of stars. And in that case, like if we come back in a few hundred thousand to a million years, you'd have a nice open cluster in the constellation of Orion, right where the Orion Nebula is right now. So questions on star formation? No, no, no. All right, then we can. Got a few minutes to get started on the next one. Yay. Chapter 12. Now we're going to skip a big chunk here because we just formed a star in the last chapter. Chapter 11 talked about this formation of a star. Chapter 12 talks about the death of a star. We're skipping the whole life of the star. There's not much else to talk about. We form a main sequence star. There isn't much else going on there. So there's not a whole lot to actually form to do talk about. We talked about some of it. We talked about the sun specifically. But really, for 10 billion years, the sun's boring. It doesn't do much of anything. You know, it's interesting, we get to see solar flares and all that cool stuff because we're so close to it. But looking at a star like the sun from many light years away, not a whole lot happens to it for 10 billion years. This formation took, you know, what? Millions of years? Billions of years, it's going to sit there and burn hydrogen into helium. It's not going to change. Then the interesting things happen at the end. So we're kind of zipping through the end of that end of that life. So you'll see chapter 12 starts off with leaving the main sequence. We're getting off the main sequence, leaving it, and going on beyond that. What's going to happen to it after? This is when the interesting things start to happen. Here we'll look at a star like the sun first. We'll go through in detail like we did with formation. But then we'll look at the in more detail about low and more massive stars. Now here's where things differ a little bit. A star like the sun will do, go through certain stages. Low mass stars will do things a little bit differently. Even more massive stars will do things quite differently than the sun does. So unlike the formation where they were all pretty much the same, the end of a star, the death of a star is much, more, much different considering the mass. In fact, one of the things we'll get to when we look at the most massive stars is a supernova explosion. So some stars will become completely unstable, tear themselves apart, and they will see the, brightest, or see the brightest star in the sky. We'll come back to star clusters. I showed you a couple of those slides today where we looked at the open cluster and the globular cluster. When I come to it here next week, we'll look at a whole range of them. So we'll look at a whole big range to try to see how this stellar evolution, how the end life of the star occur, how the end life of the stars occur at different, in different star clusters. And then finally, what is, the, what is the cycle? So how does this, how does this affect everything else? So here's the, here's the main sequence. Main sequence phase. What you've got is the star is really in what we call equilibrium. It's balanced. You've got gravity is pulling it down. Gravity wants to pull that whole star down and crush it down to nothing. Okay, it's got a star there. That's what the star that's what the sun wants to do. If you turned off if you if you turned off any other forces and only had gravity there, the sun would be pulled down immediately to a black hole. Boom. There's nothing else to hold it up. Gravity wants to do that. Gravity only stops when something keeps it from collapsing. Gravity wants to pull the earth down to a black hole. Gravity wants to pull you down to a black hole. I mean, that's what gravity does. It wants to pull everything down to as small as it can possibly be. 
In the case of us and the Earth, you've got pressures that push out against gravity. And eventually, like on the Earth, you get rocks pushing against each other, right? They're, they're holding each other up. So there's a pressure involved that is keeping gravity from crushing it down. You know, you have particles in you, there's, you know, there's repulsions against it that are pushing against gravity from keeping you from being pulled in, and you're not all that massive, right? You don't have that much mass compared to the Earth, compared to the Sun. So you don't have enough gravity, enough gravity to overcome that. Now, we have on the Earth, as I said, you, know, you have rocks, you have materials pushing against each other that are keeping it from collapsing. The Sun has more mass. That wouldn't work on the Sun. So you can't the Sun, there's no rocks there. There's nothing to push it against each other. But there is a source of energy in the interior. And that's what this is showing you here, is that Gravity is pulling it down, that's the blue arrows, but it's got all this energy being produced at the core. There's a nuclear explosion going on at the core. Think about it that way, it's a runaway nuclear explosion going on at the core, constantly converting you know, more mass to energy than we can imagine with all of our nuclear weapons combined. Going on every second in the core of the sun. So it's trying to tear the sun apart. Those two are just perfectly balanced. So that there's just enough energy being created to push the sun and to hold it up just the way it is, as there is gravity pulling it down. If it, that gets out of balance, then something's going to happen and the sun will change. If you could turn off gravity, what do you got? You got a nuclear explosion at the core. Boom! The sun tears itself apart. No, that's not a supernova explosion. That's something different we'll come to in a little bit. But that would happen. If you could somehow magically turn off gravity, the sun explodes. Because you have all that force still pushing, pushing outward, that would explode it. If you could turn off energy production in the sun, boom, the sun wants to collapse. Gravity kicks in, there's nothing opposing it, it's going to pull it down. Right now, again, it's perfectly balanced. And that's what we call equilibrium. And an equilibrium means that what happens is, suppose the sun produces a little bit too much energy. Okay, It's producing a little bit too much energy. So it's stronger. Now, now the force inside is stronger than gravity. Now just a little more. It's not going to tear itself apart, but it tries to expand the star. The star starts to grow a little bit. It's pushing outward more than gravity is pushing in. The star is going to start to grow. Well, when you do that, temperature cools off. Right? Make something bigger, the temperature is going to cool off. If you cool it off, there's less energy, and it starts to collapse. So that's what it means. It's an equilibrium. If it tries to produce too much energy, it expands and cools off if it gets too hot. If it gets too cool and produces less energy for a, for a little bit, it collapses, heats it up, and reaches again another balance. The sun has been able to do this for five billion years and stay almost exactly the same. It doesn't change significantly. Its temperatures have not changed much in five billion years. And they won't for five billion years more. That's how much energy is left, how much a store of energy is left at the center of the sun. So if you go overboard, it'll eventually, what will happen later, and that's what we're going to look at here, is if you do get to the point where an energy source runs out, as an energy source starts to wind down and there's less energy, you know, I do the magical turn it off and the star blows up. That doesn't happen because you can't magically turn off gravity or turn off the energy production. It's not just going to be the sun has, it's not like a car, right? Driving down the highway and you weren't watching your gas gauge and you run out of gas and you stop. Okay? The sun isn't going to do that. It's not just going to say, oh, here's the last, last helium, last hydrogen atoms I can fuse together, I'm done. It's going to slowly wind down over a period of many millions of years. 
you're going to have less and less hydrogen at the core. So you're going to have the reactions are slowly going to go down. And we'll see a gradual change. There'll be less energy being produced. And the core will start to collapse as the core cools off. So the core will start to collapse. Interestingly enough, some of the outer layers will start to expand. And that's when we'll start working towards the red giant phase. But it all has to do with this balance of equilibrium. Your balance, the whole, thing, whole life of a star is really balancing gravity and the energy production. So it's really just a fight against gravity. And gravity being very patient and not having any place else to go ends up winning all the time. Eventually, gravity is going to win and collapse the star down. Maybe not to a black hole, but it's going to collapse it down at the end of any star's life. So what's going to happen? Eventually, we've used up all that hydrogen. So the star's on the main sequence. It sits there. Again, I've kind of skipped that whole life of the star, that 10 billion years. There's not much going on there. I've summarized it in a, in a slide there. But then as it starts to use up that hydrogen, and again, it doesn't turn off like that. You're going to slowly work that out over the next, when the sun goes through 5 billion years, then 6, and 7, and 8, and 9. When it gets to that last billion or so, you're going to start to notice, you know, we won't, we won't be here, but you'll start to notice that the star is not producing quite as much energy at the core, and it will start to change. Its temperature and pressures and luminosities will start to change, and it will appear to move on the main sequence. What happens depends really on how massive the star is. A low mass star like the sun is a relatively low mass star. Doesn't do much. It'll expand, it will change, it'll get a lot bigger, and it'll change, you know, it'll become a red giant star, it will change, but it doesn't do anything explosive. The high mass stars, much more massive than the sun, are the interesting ones that'll actually tear themselves apart. That's when you'll get a supernova explosion where the star will become unstable in its core completely and will rip itself apart and expl completely explode. So what's happening right now, just to give you an idea, when, when the star from the sun formed, it was pretty much hydrogen and helium throughout, just about the same. After five billion years, that's about where we are now. We got a lot of helium at the core. But you still have all of this hydrogen. You still have a lot of hydrogen here. You've gone through a good chunk of the hydro helium hydrogen was there. You still have a lot left. After 10 billion years, as you get towards the edge, again, the composition changes more. If you look at where that core is, there's not a lot of hydrogen left. You've got almost all helium in the core. The other important thing to notice that we say the composition of the core is changing, not the composition of the star. If we went and took a look at the spectrum of the sun five billion years ago, we took a look at it now, we took a look at it five billion years from now, you're going to get the same spectrum. The outer layers of the sun are not changing. So even though the sun looks like it's burning, it's not hydrogen fusion that's going on on the sun. It's hydrogen fusion that's going on deep in its core. We don't see any of that. When we look at the surface, we're going to see exactly you know, 90% hydrogen, 10% helium. That's going to be the same when the sun gets to the end of its life as it is right now. Deep down inside, that's where everything is beginning to change. That's where we're getting. And as I said, you're not running out of hydrogen. You're, lower, you're slowly getting rid of it. There's still a good amount of hydrogen right now. But boy, when you get deep down to that core, you've got 50, 60, 
know, 60, 70, 80% helium right now deep down in the core. But there's still so much out here that the sun doesn't have any worries. It's still got 5 billion years worth of fuel. You get down here, you've pretty much got nothing. Your hydrogen is gone in the core and even a little ways out. So only this little outer part of the core still has some hydrogen. Not enough to keep, protect against gravity anymore and gravity is going to start kicking in. Helium doesn't fuse together. Not yet. It will. Question, sir. Sorry. Um, can you go back to my question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it really is depending. It's really what you're seeing on the interior. Is you can't, what you can't see in the interior is where all the changes are going on for all of these stars, whether they're low mass stars or high mass stars. You can't see that. You don't see it directly on the outside. These stars, even the high mass stars, you're not seeing any changes. You're not seeing any changes on the exterior. If you just take a, take an exam, take, an, take a spectrum of them, you're going to get exactly the same composition at the beginning of their lives as you would at the end. So that is not changing. It's not the core that's it's not the core that's changing. The core is what is what's changing, not the outer layers. All right. Questions. I'm going to kind of finish up here because we're actually a little bit ahead, which is good because we'll probably end up behind someplace along the line. So chapter 12 wasn't supposed to start till next week. So other questions? Questions? Yes. Um, you said the sun, the stars, the sun, the sun, ten billion years. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm ever aware of, no. Not unless there was something really odd going on, like it was a binary star system and something happened. You know, you could have had something unstable like that that could have changed things. But just a typical star, there's nothing else that should. No. Not, not to my knowledge of anything, no. Okay. So I'll go ahead and let you take your break and then we'll come back and start, uh, start lab at 10 while I get the computers booted up.